Welcome to the Forerunners.app podcast with Alice and Lissy. Today's episode number four is all about tendons. So in the physio world, we talk about that age demographic. In the 20s, you end up with bone stress injuries in the running community. In your 30s, it's tendons. In your 40s, 50s, it can be joints. And that is a generalization, but something that is really common, specifically after the increase in running in COVID, is the number of tendon injuries. Lissy, you are smack bang in the middle of a tendon injury at the moment. I've had plenty, but before we dive into it, I'm going to start with some quick fire questions for you, Al. All right. First of all, running with AirPods or corded headphones? AirPods, always. Peer jump or sauna? Peer jump, that water outcome, always for me. Pigeon or figure four glute stretch? Deep pigeon stretch, nothing better when your hips are tight. Would you prefer to lose sleep or lose a meal? It's a tough one. Yeah, I'm going to say lose some sleep, to be honest. Would you prefer a good book or a good TV show? Look, I would love to say that I was really cultured and literature was my go-to, but I must say I love a bit of passive entertainment. You are an avid reader, though. I feel like you get through books pretty quickly. I do love them. However, um, to be honest, I'm not surprised. You love a series. I love a series so much. I've seen so many and I feel like um, that's my, yeah, it's not one, number one entertainment. Quick fire round for you, Liz. Have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night by a phone call? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Do you have to stir for the wind? Yeah, I sleep with my phone on airplane mode, so um, there's nothing that's going to really be able to penetrate my sleep through that. Well, thank God. All right, running in a crop top or singlet? Crop top, easy, the less the better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you. All right. If you have to survive on just yogurt or cottage cheese for the rest of your life. Oh, without a doubt. Do you know the answer? Of course I know the answer. Yogurt. Yogurt forever. I've never seen someone eat so much yogurt in my whole entire life. Hey, calcium intake must be astronomical. It's actually amazing to see it straight out of the dub. It's, yeah, it's quite a talent. All right. Pilates wise, abs class or a Pilates runners class? Tough one. I uh, have to say abs though, for sure. Then you mean abs, that's always been your favourite. It is, it is. I feel like that's definitely my strength. Also because I'm really stiff. So I find sometimes it's hard to get into the right positions um, <laughs> to get that um, glute burn in the runner sessions. Yeah, it's true. And also typically you've always done heaps of running, right? So your legs are always, always tired. Exactly. Yeah, whereas your core's always kind of fresh. That's relatively. true. That's true. All right, 10K on the road or 10K on the track? 10K on the road. And the reason for that, I mean, well, to be honest, I've never actually done a 10K on the track, so I can't really, like, compare. Um, But the thing is about track racing is that you're very exposed. So 10K on the track, I am assuming, would feel a lot longer. And there's so much room for error, like, in terms of you're aware of your pace every 100, 200, 400 metres. And so if you slip off the pace for, you know, even just 200 metres, you're so aware of it because you can see the clock right there. Whereas if you slip off the pace for a little bit or go a little bit too fast or a little bit too slow on a road race, you just sort of absorb it and you don't notice it. So you, you don't have that sort of like panic or worry if you accidentally run a little bit too fast or too slow comparatively to what you have planned. And I also feel like you thrive on a bit of an undulating surface. So on a track, it's flat, it's exposed, it's just what it is, it's hard and fast. Whereas you tend to sort of tuck in behind, it's usually like the winning pack. And you can really, really just hold on. Doesn't matter how much pain you're in, you just put yourself in the zone. And I've seen you that most recent thing how you won. Super hot day, you were just in the back of a men's pack, and you just managed to just charge on through. And it was windy, it was hot, it was nasty, but you just sort of smashed it, came through with the wind. Oh, that was actually a really great race. It was it was a lot of fun. And the good thing about fun runs is that sort of 
camaraderie like at the finish line and it, it is it's always such a vibe and so you know I'm a real community person so I do love that as well and you're running with the men so there's always plenty of people to run with do you remember that day in particular though it was a really hot <laughs> hot and windy day and I think I just remember seeing everyone's face crossing the line they were just so unimpressed just because it was it was so hard and so I think most people would have looked at their watch and just expected a, a really good time but because of the headwind over the last 3k yeah absolutely brutal you know it, it's always a bit of a worry when the person that wins sort of comes across the finish line and says nah I didn't like that too hard yeah I guess they're not happy they're not happy at all although however I do feel like right now like like you said right in the middle of my hamstring tendon injury I would give anything to be back out there running on a humid hot windy Sunday morning at any fun run to be honest it's actually the perfect segue to the actual meat of the session which is tendon injuries tendon health what to do what not to do in the running space so I guess first of all out what causes tendon issues okay so Specifically, just to sort of clarify too, we're talking about lower limb tendons here because upper limb versus lower limb tendons, completely different management strategies and also cause. But I'd say I'd put it down to three massive components for tendons. The number one thing that causes tendons is change in load. And that load can be in the fact that you're adding speed work, you're adding extra volume, you're changing your terrain and you're loading up tendons more than what they're prepared for. Second aspect is, of course, the lack of strength. So if you are running along, you can sort of get your happy spot for quite some time and that's that's good. If you do change your load, you don't have the adequate strength, tendons will break down and you'll know about it. The first thing it will be will just be pain, stiffness. And the lack of strength is probably the major one that I see. And the third thing will be biomechanics. And that sort of encompasses the way you move when you run. But also sort of tying into that, what sort of footwear you're wearing, what sort of terrain you're running on. So that whole movement pattern, if you've got a lack of mobility in some aspect of your body and then you'll load up your lower limb more. So sort of putting all those three things into a major category of load, strength, and then your biomechanics. And that that's actually really interesting. I can speak anecdotally about my hamstring issue. It's been ongoing for the past few years and initially it started like quite acutely when I was in Japan doing like quite high mileage. So obviously for me, that was a massive change in load, increasing significantly. Um, but also I'd stopped doing all my like gym and Pilates work over there because the Japanese are just not really big on that. You know, they have a really strong depth of marathon runners over there. So their focus is basically just run as much as you can. Um, they don't focus on, you know, the little sort of intricacies of, of strength work. And so I guess those two things definitely went against me, which is what probably kickstarted it a few years ago. And I guess just to sort of really lay it out on the line here, it blew my mind talking about this uh, a couple of years ago. What would be, for example, a typical week load for the Japanese runners? Women that were at part of my team were running about 100 oh, probably 160 to 200 Ks a week. A lot of the men's teams are running up to 300 K a week. So I guess a typical day for us would look like our morning session would be at 6am and we do a 10 to 14k run, you know, single file along the river and we'll have all the coaches you know, on their bikes pacing us uh, at four minutes per k. Then the next session would be at about 11 o'clock and that might be a track session, which would be uh, about a 12k tempo run or it might be reps of 400s and nothing, nothing crazy fast, uh, just like a lot of volume. And then finally, the afternoon session at 4 p.m. would just be an easy run. For me, I tried to do as little as possible. Tried to walk if I could because I'd already done quite a lot of running that day. A lot of the other girls would, be, would run up to an hour. 
that is just phenomenal, isn't it? To even think three running sessions a day, it's just wild. And with no strength in there, actually all the hackles go up just thinking about it. Yeah, and I mean, for, for me, I'm a track runner, I'm a very bouncy runner. So that kind of, you know, that kind of change doesn't really suit me. And, you know, I adapted as well as I could while being over there, but dropping the strength stuff, I think, you know, obviously my tendons really uh, pay the price for it. Actually, that's really interesting. We've seen footage and that's something that I've seen with you. You actually change your entire running technique just to cope with the terrain and the load of Japan. Can you talk us about that? I was actually quite aware of it when I was over there just because I was doing these like really long sessions and I know that I'm a very toey runner and I've had um, some foot stress fractures in the past just like through my feet biomechanics. So I was I was very aware of this and when I came back from a serious stress fracture, I was told by an exercise physiologist that I need, I need to land a little bit more rear foot. And so that was something that I guess was in the back of my mind. So when I went to Japan and then I was told I had to do all this mileage, I went really back to being quite protective and landing a lot more further back on my heel. And it is interesting looking back and seeing videos of how differently my gait actually was. But I mean, fortunately, it did save me probably from getting sort of bone injuries when I was over there, maybe also along with my calcium <laughs> consumption. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is possible. And I think like a, like a more shuffly technique is probably safer for injury prevention. But you know, if you want to be like strong and powerful, then probably bouncier on the track is, is more effective. And I guess, can you paint the image of the breakfast scene? So my mind automatically goes, when you mention that sort of mileage the Japanese were doing, automatically goes to, okay, what breaks down first for them? Is it the bones? Is it the tendons? Like, what what is their triage of injury situation? Uh, you know, and, and did they get injured all the time or are they just completely robust and they're used to it? Like, to be honest, it was hard because I went over there not speaking a word of Japanese. No one on my team spoke in English. So it was me trying to like fumble my way through and learn as I as I went along. So I guess I didn't know exactly what their injuries were, but the vibe that I got was that they also didn't really have a correct diagnosis of what the injuries were. It was just like my shins are sore or this body part sore, but everyone would turn up to, you know, the, the dining room after our morning training session. Uh, just covered in ice packs all over all over their body parts so everyone would have it strapped to something so everyone seemed to be dealing with something not like it was it, it was quite rare for people to actually like break down completely and have to have extended periods of time off more often than not they just sort of push through it's wild isn't it just and to know that at breakfast time you've got your ice packs on but you've also then got to go to a tempo then you've got to do another hour run it's just like Imagine that. It actually blows my mind. Do you know what? That actually just brings something to mind. I remember there was this one girl and she was off running with a stress fracture. Maybe it was her shins and she had her very first training day back with the squat. She was doing all this cross training for however long she was out for. And her very first run back, or her very first day back rather, she did the morning session. So she ran for an hour on concrete. And then she also did the afternoon session, ran for another hour. So she did her session back. Her very first day. And I was like, are you sure? And then her third session, she was allowed to do cross training. But I, I just, I don't know how they get away from that. And it's just, just to be clear, she didn't get, she didn't refracture. I, I don't, uh, she was quite injury prone. So I, I wouldn't put it past, but yeah, I'm not having to And that is actually next episode. We are going to delve into dealing with bone stress and fractures. We're, we're probably getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Back, back to tendons. Um, so as a physio, what is the most challenging aspect of healing and recovering tendons? To go a little bit backtracking there, in terms of tendons, it does really, really depend on the diagnosis. So there are so many lower limb tendons and it's really easy to box someone into proximal hamstring tendon, Achilles tendon, 
Whereas it may actually be, you know, slightly different. It might be a component of the perineal tendons. And so it might also be some of the adductor tendons. So to get a completely perfect diagnosis is first and foremost the trickiest part of dealing with a tendon. But then also the pain that you get from a tendon is in two different layers. You've got the mechanical component, so the impact load, you've got the inflammatory component. So you're dealing with a patient that has pain in an area and you've got to work out, first of all, which exact tendon. Second of all, is it more inflammatory? Is it more mechanical? And third of all, probably the injury compliance, right? Tendon rehab is long, arduous, boring. There is nothing pretty about it. And to be honest, a lot of the time, most people fall off the wagon. And to be honest, I'm not surprised. I know that I'm definitely guilty of it, being told to do exercises and you have, you know, every best intention of doing it. And then I remember going back and seeing the physio the following week or whatever, and they would say, how did you go with your exercises? And you're like, oh, I remembered like once or twice but never actually doing it that diligently. So I can imagine it'll be super frustrating as a physio uh, because you know like you know that you know what works and you know the exercises are going to work, but you have to trust that the, the athlete is going to actually do it. And to be honest, the running community is incredibly diligent. You know, they do their exercises. They love running so much. It's part of their personality. It's their daily activity. It's their outlet. It's their passion. So I think in the running community, you probably get exposed to the best kind of clientele in terms of doing their rehab. However, there is a compromise and I think it is a two-way aspect. So it is up to the physio to not make the exercises too long and too arduous. You know, to give someone exercises that are 30 minutes routine a day, it's just not okay, in my opinion. It's a lot of time spent doing, you know, unnecessary, well, not unnecessary, but it's like when people are, they, they just want to run, right? So having to do that on top of it, it's really quite time consuming. It is. And I think it is up to the physio to go, right, sort of started to learn this in the last few years that I was still practicing. I'm going to give you two exercises. Literally, you're going to do it every day and it's going to take you under 10 minutes. It has to be under 10 minutes because you get better compliance and you may not get to the end result as fast as if you did 30 minutes a day, but people continue to do it. And I think actually implementing lifestyle-friendly strategies for rehab is so much more important than getting everyone to behave like perhaps an elite athlete would, where they've got plenty of time throughout the day to do with their physio, their strength, their rehab, their gym, you know, their cross-training, etc. So I think, yeah, I sort of learned, and from all the rehab that I've done with all the tendons that I've had, I did find that um, short, sharp, and effective was as pinpointed an approach I could get. I guess it leads to that consistency, right? And that's that's ultimately what will get you the results with with anything. Absolutely. Um, and what did you find actually helped the most? So I've had several tendons. I've had a little bit of everything in my time, like going from gymnastics into running. You kind of get a little bit of everything. So I have had two surgeries on my plantar fascia, which you can kind of put under the umbrella of a tendon injury approach very similarly. I've had an Achilles. I've had perineal tendons. I've had proximal hamstring the works. And I guess the common thread with all of those things is I did have to modify my load, right? That's the first and foremost. So for most of them, in fact, uh, continuing to run, but never every day, every second day, but less volume, no speed work, no heels. And the other thing that I did find too was tendons really, especially in the lower limb, don't actually like soft surfaces and certainly not moving surfaces like the tan or Albert Park, that sort of scraping motion really means you have to use all of your grip strength in your lower limb and it really aggravates tendons. That is so interesting because I'm the kind of person, I grew up in the Dandenong Ranges and so I'm used to just running on soft surface, dirt trails, you name it. And so now I'm running like close to the city on roads and around the town and I find it really quite hard. So I'm always looking for a soft surface 
Um, I did notice, however, that my hamstring would always flare up running around the tan because it's a little bit slippery mm. um, and also on softer surfaces like grass, which is I was totally baffled by. Yeah. And so there's so many things you can do for them too. And obviously changing terrain can make a massive difference. Also footwear, depending on the tendon. So if it is sort of a patella tendon versus an Achilles tendon, you're actually going to be wanting opposite things. So you don't want to be overloading the knee. So a flatter shoe works best. But if you're in a plantar fascia or an Achilles state of injury, you want a bit more of a rise. So you want a higher stack shoe. And sort of playing around with that sort of ergonomics. Also, of course, strength, specifically isometrics, is paramount in any sort of lower limb tendon health but the first thing and foremost with any tendon is actually trying to get a reduction in pain they can be so sore people can come in and they may have ignored it for a while and it's a raging hot inflamed tendon and it's no point in trying to get them to do heaps of strength if they actually can't tolerate it Mm, yeah Uh, I mean I can relate to that when I first had my hamstring flare up probably about three years ago when I was in Japan um, I had a month off training and when I got back into it 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 just felt exactly the same. Like the rest actually didn't do anything at all for it. Um, I didn't have very good advice over there, but I did find an Australian physio, um, Jacob Monk, who is now moved back to Australia and, um, you know, looks after many runners, runner friends of mine. Um, he was absolutely fantastic in, in terms of educating me, uh, you know, what the injury is and how we're going to go about fixing it and why. Because, and I think that comes back to, you know, when, when you're just being told, do these exercises, when the physio says, gives you a bunch of exercises and just tells you to do it and just trust it. Um, that's one thing. But when the physio actually educates you as to, you know, what the purpose of each exercise is and what you're hoping to gain from it, it gives you, I guess, it makes you just become a little bit more autonomous in your recovery journey as well. So I was extremely diligent and I made sure that I was doing my isometrics about five times a day. And from that, and including the strength work, that really accelerated the recovery. And you had a nasty journey because you had sort of a slightly acute tear and then it became sort of chronic and then it had another acute tear at State Champs 5K and then it's sort of grumbled along for quite a few years. So you've probably got, you know, the quintessential like chronic tendon management situation. I was much luckier in terms of mine was sort of shorter, less severe, and I was able to get on top of them conservatively. But you've gone down the PRP pathway and this would be controversial. You know, you get all this advice out there, people that hate it, people that love it, people swear by it, people say it's expensive, it doesn't do anything. What is your experience so far with PRP? I mean, it is really hard and it wasn't something that I wanted to do for that reason. Um, it's expensive and it doesn't work. It's pretty much the advice that most people gave to me. However, like I said, like I did have it acutely a, a few years ago and I was able to you know, get back to normal just through isometrics. And then it sort of grumbled along for the past few years, but it's been manageable. So I just try and sort of get through the training, I guess. Uh, but then it was sort of November, December, a few months ago that like it really... Uh, flared up again. So I tried, I had two months off running and really went hard on um, strength and Pilates and isometrics, like you name it, still painful, still hasn't really healed, still can't really even like power walk. So we did go down the PRP pathway, which basically they take your blood, they spin it and separate it and they inject it in a more concentrated warm right into the injury site. So it's a pretty cool technique, works for some people, doesn't work for everybody. And it depends on your body's healing ability, I guess, amongst uh, uh, lots of other things as well. So that's what I did. It left me on the couch for about 10 days 
and, you know, trying to do as little as possible and then gradually rebuilding from there. I feel like it was probably to paint the scene of this PRP, which I was there for, just hold, holding your leg at the back. Lissy rocks up to this PRP. She's been given one instruction. That's to make sure that you hydrate before the PRP. And naturally, the day before her PRP injections ditched up, Alice took me to a sauna. <laughs> it was a really good time. It was really relaxing. We had like a float as well. We did a sauna. We did a float. We were so dehydrated. So well, the idea was just to have a really nice relaxing day. Which of course, it was great. And then it wasn't until afterwards that I was just like, oh no, I made a massive stank. This is a job. Literally the opposite to what I was supposed to do. Um, so we went for a uh, emergency sauna stop. Um, emergency. emergency slurpee stop. We went for an emergency slurpee stop on the way to the PRP injection, which was actually fantastic. So Lucy rocks up, she's still slurping into a slurpee while she's sitting on the bed in her little gown. And they're about to administer it. He was like, I've never had this before, but he's like, I don't mind it. And um, just to observe that whole process, you know, with the ultrasound on the exact upper hamstring tendon, like right up into the glute and down, they sort of spoke it. They insert it, inject the new blood that they've spun and, you know, inject, inject, inject all the way down the hamstring. And it looked pretty painful. You did a really good job. You're pretty brave. Yeah, it wasn't, it, it was a little, it was quite an uncomfortable process to be totally honest. But I mean, you've got to, you've got to give it a go. Once you've, once you've got to that point where, I'm, you know, I've had it for a few years, have had a, a, like a real discrepancy between my left and right leg strength. You know, it was time to sort of deal with it properly. And so if you're going to take a few months off running completely, then you need to do it properly. And there's so many things you can do just in day to day. So a common thing with tendons is, you know, avoid sitting down. Doesn't matter which tendon it is, prolonged aspects of sitting in one position are really provocative. We've actually rocked up to cinema with like a BYO pillow that we've like used to put underneath the glutes or to kneel on. At least he was kneeling at the in a high kneel position for a while. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Um, I do remember we went to go and see Joseph and the Technicolor Raincoat <laughs> and... um. Lucy, it's not Joseph with a coloured raincoat, it's technical dream coat. Dream coat. Close. Similar. Dream. Raincoat. I don't know, it's something prepared for anything. We did go and see this musical, however, and um, I remember, like, I couldn't even sit for five minutes. Literally not at all. And so I had to kneel on my knees for the entire, what was it, like two and a half hours? Like you're at mass, kind of just kneeling <laughs> at the front. And, yeah. 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 And um, I think um, all of your nieces were sort of wondering what I was doing, but one of them actually joined me. So... <laughs> Some sort of trends that up and trending. Yeah. And the other things you can do too is obviously just getting strong in the rest of your body does make a really big difference. So not only is it just targeting strength at the actual tendon, but I mean, obviously I'm a sucker for this, but like deep abdominal, glute strength, pelvic alignment, pelvic strength, huge difference in how much force you transmit into your lower limb. So the second you've got sort of weak hips, glutes, core, you do end up loading your knees, your ankles, your hamstrings more. So I feel like there is a lot of work to be done in that upper pelvic space strength. Yeah. And I mean, obviously no one wants to be sidelined for months on end because of an injury, but I do very much believe that a silver lining to this is that it's highlighted the need for that strength. And so, like I mentioned, I've gone pretty hard on doing all of the like Pilates and strength, full body, like upper body as well. You know, like just because you're a runner doesn't mean that you only focus on like the core and the glutes. It's sort of about, you know, holding your posture and all those muscles as well. And so I've gone pretty hard on that. And I think that that's going to help me significantly in the future. So I, I guess I am quite grateful for that in terms of, you know, silver linings from this particular injury. You're always glass half full, like literally so full that in fact, when she pours her coffee in the mornings, she'll have to do that little slurp off the top because it will overflow. And I love that about you. I absolutely love it. And honest opinion, seriously. And you don't have to say yes, but if you were in Japan years ago, before you initially tore the hamstring, if you had been doing strength 
and proper load management then, do you think that you could have avoided the hamstring tendon altogether? Yeah, absolutely. Like without a doubt. And I think that's, you know, that's my advice to anyone that's dealing with any type of tendon injury, but also any injury, nip it in the bud as soon as possible. Uh, because if you can get on top of it, it'll, you know, you can get back into your normal routine and be doing the things that you actually want to do. Whereas if you put it off, it's only going to prolong the healing process. And so I think it's like, I was faced with this decision right now. Do I try and tape it up and get right for the season and try and get through the track season? Or do I completely pull back and get it a hundred percent right? And I think it's been an incredibly frustrating process. At times it's felt well enough to start running again, but my physio has said, no, it has to be a hundred percent pain-free before I can even progress slightly. And so while it's really frustrating, I know that it's going to really pay off in the long run because we're not going to have those sort of setbacks. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the most challenging things about injuries is making sure that you can get back as much of a linear way as possible without those setbacks. And I could testify that for my two plantar fascia surgeries. And had I gone onto my plantar much sooner and done the strength, deload the ergonomic footwear and done all the things properly, I have no doubt in my mind that I wouldn't have had all the chronic issues I've had with my plantar fascia. So absolutely. And in the running community, we're unfortunately all about just, oh, we'll just run it out. If I had a dollar for every time a patient said, oh, I think it was fine, but then I just tried to sort of run it out. How far do you go? 22K? That's in order. That's in order thing. And to be honest, we've all done it. It'll probably happen at some stage again when you get away with it. But with tendons, you do not want to push them over the edge. It's that fine line of doing enough to strengthen them, maintain them, but not tipping the load over the edge so you just end up on the cliff face. Yeah, so I guess on top of going for 22K runs on a sore injury, what else is uh, helpful to avoid? What else is helpful to avoid? So I would say being too stationary, of course, going back to that one. And also not replacing your footwear soon enough. I feel like that's a really, really big one, particularly the below the knee. Absolutely agree with that. And I mean, I'm totally, I'm one of the most guilty of that because I just want to get, you know, every single kilometre I possibly can out of it. You were actually wearing socks today that you got when you were 17. Yeah. The other to get things like a full mile out of every piece of clothing. And I'm feeling, oh, like I'm actually really excited because they're getting a little tiny little evidence of a bit of a hole in the heel. And so I'm like, yes, I can start to think about throwing them away soon but it's like it's not I love throwing things away but it's not completely fulfilling until you really have to but I definitely recommend with footwear changing them quite regularly you see just they probably still look good and you can sort of delist them to your walking shoes or your gardening shoes or whatever not just have to get rid of them but certainly with your running impact shoes and particularly the super shoes oh my goodness they actually just compress they turn lateral and they just shrink, like literally just for races is my opinion. People that train in them constantly end up with lots of tendon overload and also the shoes are not designed for it. So it's like wearing what I do, like this pristine, really fancy wetsuit, which is like a race suit just to keep warm, which is what I do. But then that wetsuit ends up just being absolutely just torn to shreds because I'm not careful with it. It's you know, it's just for special occasions. And I guess with a lot of the footwear that we have nowadays, like they're quite thick through the midsole yep. and I do think that uh, for me personally I do notice wearing on the outside I'm definitely an overpronator so my feet actually roll in but I do notice that my shoes are wearing it looks like I'm rolling out from them just I guess from the way that I land which is kind of contradictory to what I've always thought um, that I needed so I do think that you know if, if you do get a new pair of shoes you will notice immediately like how different they feel from the ones that you've worn in so getting them replaced as much as you can. And then other sort of models of treatment would be soft tissue work, which has actually been really phased out in tendon treatment. 
So dry needling, soft tissue massage, it, it can make a little bit of a difference for pain modulation, but in terms of healing and regeneration, that's not the treatment we go for anymore. So that's very much phased out in the tendon space. It's all about strength and load management and also the ergonomics and environment. So, you know, if you need a standing desk, if you've got an upper hamstring, you can't sit down, that's great. If you need to get special orthotics to offload your plantar fascia, those sort of lifestyle things that we can implement make a huge difference as well. And in terms of plantar fascia, you know, what did you find was actually effective for that specifically? For me, surgery was unfortunately the only thing that got mine better, but that is not what I would advise to yeah. anyone, right? And for me personally, that was my journey because it was so bad and so chronic and so torn. However, with a plantar fascia that I would see just from a runner that's coming with an acute flare-up, deload, orthotics, and also doing some isometrics for the calves is a huge, um, specifically with that big toe lifted as well to really target the plantar fascia. It makes a massive difference. And to be honest, I actually remember back in the plantar fascia days, overnight is when you actually get that real contraction of the plantar fascia. So you wake up in the morning, your first step actually feels like you're walking on glass. So nasty and you hobble around like an old person until it sort of warms up. So I decided to start wearing just one sheet of bed. I had like a high top pair of Converse. So it keeps <laughs> your foot in dorsiflexion, your toes up towards the ceiling. So you've got your ankle locked. So when you stand up in the morning, it's like obviously you've got one shoe on, it's obviously really weird, but I mean, your foot doesn't hurt anymore. So what you do at nighttime, you can get some ergonomic splits and that really helped as well. Yeah, right. So we're um, going to see people going to buy a single Converse now. <laughs> you definitely buy two. You only need to wear one, though. As long as, unless you've got bilateral plantar fasciitis, in which case, where do you choose to bed? Guys, go for it. It's not It's not pretty. It's not sexy, obviously, but it's, it's... Yeah, and you can actually have a specific split that you can get made for you to wear at nighttime. Also, not aesthetic or yeah. very useful. And something else I, I think that we've both seen quite a lot in a lot of runners who have had uh, plantar fasciitis issues is shoe size. A lot of people are sort of wearing, you know, if you're a size eight in your Converse, you're a size eight in your Brooks shoes too. But I think that's not necessarily the case. After being fitted out at the running company, tell us about, you know, what you found. Yeah, so it was amazing. I've always been a six and a half. I'm a small person, so six and a half, that was fine. But I'm actually not a six and a half. I've never been a six and a half. So it's amazing once you actually go up half the size. And in fact, I've gone up two half sizes. I've been going to the Albert Park running company now for quite some time. And every time I go, they just gingerly up half the size so my foot can actually land and splay. For a while there, when I broke my toe, which is a different story, it's not a tendon, they actually got me not only up two sizes, but they also got me the wide fit. <laughs> so glamorous. So glamorous. I was so mortified. I was like, why am I wide fit? Shoe size. Actually, I have to, yeah, I have to confirm this. Alice came back and like hid the shoe box. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what shoes did you get? And I was like, well, why are you kind of like smuggling the shoe box out the back there? And then I realized it was because it said wide fit. But not only did it say wide fit, it was like emblazoned in huge capital letters across the side of the box. Or my shoebox just said wide. It was really aggressive, I will admit. <laughs> it's too much. Anyway, to be honest, that was actually brilliant. Loved it. I'm still in wide shoes now because they feel really nice. Yeah. And um, I also have bunions. Another story again. But I think that is the difference is that I think we typically just go for the same size shoe that we would wear in a casual pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, however, when you're running, your feet do splay and they don't need that extra room. So I think it really is important to go up. You've also gone up a size or two. To, as yeah, well. yeah, significantly. So like when I had um, these foot stress fractures that I mentioned earlier, I was also about a full size smaller than what I'm wearing right now. We've covered quite a bit today in terms of tendon load management, your own personal journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can come to the conclusion that, you know, making sure that you nip it in the bud rather than sort of prolonging these injuries 
as well as incorporating a strength program into your, your running regime is absolutely pivotal. And I find that not only for my training, but also for the athletes that I coach too. Absolutely. Stay tuned for next week. See you there. Bye.